Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Despite rumors to the contrary, this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Well, folks, I'm here doing this. We're moved back into the house. Those of you who are on social media have probably seen this already. but. Basically, we're back in the house, but the house isn't done. The kitchen doesn't work, and the contractor's kind of like maybe disappeared, dragging his feet anyway. In any case, we're here. The basement's all torn up, which is where my office is and recording studio, such as it is. So basically, I'm in a giant empty room with nothing on the walls, which is pretty much the worst acoustic setup possible. So the sound quality for the next couple of episodes is going to be what it is. Working on getting this patched back up, but obviously this isn't a priority. So just taking, you know, taking a little break from going through boxes to try and find food to, you know, record this episode. Because I want to get it out there. On to other business. We've got a ton of patrons and donors to thank. You guys have been amazing. I'm not going to thank everybody today because there's too many of you, but I'm going to get through about a third of them, I think. And then we've got some comments to go over, I think. And then we'll get to the actual episode. <laughs> Sorry, the housekeeping section is going to be a little long. Hopefully it's enjoyable. Okay, donors and patrons worthy of honor and praise. First up, donor Stephen shall be known from henceforward as Pirate Quartermaster Sunny, the common enemy of all humanity. Daniel shall be known from this day to many future days as Abbot Daniel, Chief Theology Lecturer at the Royal Academy, Specialist in Demonstrations of Oaths of Silence. Ibrahim shall be known from now on as Grand Duke Ibrahim, Official Quartermaster of the Royal League of Assistant Reference Librarians. Up next we have Jay, who shall be known from henceforth as Sir Jay, Associate Chief Pedant of the Royal Court Overthought Division, Department of Redundancy Department. Jay brought it to my attention that saying from henceforth is essentially the same thing as saying from from now on, and then requested uh, a name along those lines. Anyway, thank you very much, Jay. Uh, it was appreciated and gave me a good chuckle. Up next, we have Jeremiah, who shall be known from now on as Doge Jeremiah the Blind, 12-time Royal Pictionary Champion. Up next, we have Mr. S. Wilde, who shall be known as Duke Mr. S. Wilde, Chief Groom of the Royal Myotonic Goats. Up next, we have Sidney, who shall be known from now on, and in many future days, as Sir Sidney the Sublime, Warden of the Ridiculous Marches. We're about half done, guys. 
Up next, we have Samuel, who shall be known from henceforth as Viscount Samuel, Acting Operational Chief of the Department of Public Works Royal Driftway Division. That's all I'm doing of the donors for this time. Moving over to patrons. Glenn has become a recurring donor on PayPal, and usually I do the donors or the people who do PayPal are the donors and the patrons are on Patreon. But, you know, this is a third option and that's good too. So Glenn shall be known from henceforward as Glenn the Pharmacist, apothecary designate to the sundry royal goats. Up next, we have Scott, who has requested appointment to being the abbess of St. Nori. Aw, that's sweet. Next, we have Vincent, who shall be designated upon his request as Vincent of the Commune. And finally, but not leastly, we have Cordell, who shall be known from now on as Guildmaster Cordell, Chief Gouda Artisan of the Royal Goat Works. Thank you so much to everyone I just said, and also to all the people who I haven't said yet. There's a good bunch more of you for next time. And I just have to say that this has been the most stressful time of my life with very little competition and not being able to do the show has been like, you know, killing me because I really enjoy doing this. But the donations that have been coming in and the kind notes and words from everybody have been amazing, really heartening. And I just I just really appreciate it so much. And the money hasn't hurt to <laughs> say that. Like I said, there's still a whole lot left to do and there's going to be more expenses. So this has been fantastic and every little bit helps. Seriously. Thank you so much. Okay, speaking of kind notes, Stephen Wilde, who I suspect is Mr. S. Wilde, one of the donors, in any case, he sent me a very nice note, which includes the following. Hi, coming late to this. I'm binge listening and loving it. I'm up to episode 65. Here's the thing. Could you stop calling the Breton language Gaelic, please? There are two branches of modern Celtic languages, Godelic and Brythonic. Gaelic covers Irish, Scottish Gaelic, and Manx. Manx, sadly, is effectively extinct. The Brythonic group is Welsh, my language, Cornish, now also sadly extinct, and Breton. I apologize for being a language nerd, but when your language covers a lot smaller footprint than English does, these things matter. Diloch. I think that's how it's pronounced. It means thanks in Welsh. Okay, thank you very much, Stephen, for your note. And of course, you are correct. <laughs> I have nothing to add or subtract beyond apologizing for getting my linguistic bad habits from the pan-Celtic nationalism of the mid-1990s. All right, with that said, let's get to the actual episode, I suppose. I glorify you for having maintained your authority by putting to death those wandering sheep who refuse to enter the fold. And you not only have not sinned by showing a holy rigor, but I even congratulate you upon having opened the kingdom of heaven to the people submitted to your rule. A king need not fear to command massacres, when these will retain his subjects in obedience or cause them to submit to the faith of Christ, and God will reward him in this world and in eternal life for these murders. Quote from the letters of Pope Nicholas I, a saint. As quoted in The Papacy and the Civil Power by Richard Wigington Thompson, and as read by Ethan of The History of How We Play. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story, from the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning.
Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 86, Popes and Rome. Last time I was able to do a real episode, I talked all about the Etonian and Salian dynasties of the German Roman Empire of the Romans in Germany. If you want a refresher, I will give one in a future episode, but for now, almost none of that matters for today's subject, because today we are backtracking to give some background on the papacy and the city of Rome leading up to the Etonian dynasty. Now let's be clear about our terms here. Rome is a city in central Italy. It was once capital of a gigantic empire. In the Middle Ages, it was in some ways just a small city in Italy, and currently it's the capital of an upper-middle-class European state known as Italy. The Pope is, at any given time, a man. There are admittedly several positions internationally with the name Pope, but usually, and in our case, the term Pope refers to a man who holds an office which, amongst other things, makes that man the head of the Latin Catholic Church as well as the main bishop of the city of Rome. The key thing here is that Rome is a city, and the Pope is a man. One would think that it would be hard to confuse the two, and yet this distinction is the subject of some debate in the historiography. Given my penchant for obscure and even pedantic theory, I would of course like to start us off with a quick overview of that conversation. The key issue here is the wider narrative one uses to understand the papacy, and with the definition I just gave of Pope. Traditionally, the story of the popes was one that we might call the great man version of the papacy. There was an ongoing line of popes that took the office starting with St. Peter. They did things, some of which were good and some of which were less good. They were protagonists in the politics of Europe, and their motivation was based on things like their own power, and their loyalty to the correct version of Catholic theology as they saw it. In this version of the story, one could see the papacy as being on an ongoing quest to consolidate itself as the head of the church, and to force the kings of Europe to become more moral and orderly under papal leadership. Then the modern age dawned, and the popes, willingly or unwillingly, rightly or wrongly, were forced to emphasize their spiritual position rather than their political one. This broad-stroke story of the popes doing things gets a little hard to keep up if you get into any kind of detail, because if these are the sole parts of the narrative, then the popes seem to sometimes behave erratically. In fact, when you read more than superficially into the history of the popes, it becomes very clear that, at least in certain periods, they keep doing things like get assassinated, or their elections are contested by violent mobs, or they just seem to stand entirely inert, doing nothing in terms of geopolitics or theology for decades at a time. So this great man theory of poping really only works if you're looking at papal history from an outside vantage point with the popes as characters in someone else's play, or if you're just looking at things from the point of view of the Catholic Church. As modern history became a field, people inevitably asked why the popes did what they did, and that brought them to a definition of a pope similar to the one I used a moment ago. The pope is, at his core, serving two functions through most of the tenure of the existence of the office. As eventual religious leader and head of the Latin section of the Catholic Church, and as the principal political leader of a city in central Italy. How and why this happened is very interesting, but also a very long story, and one we will be addressing later in the episode. For our purposes just right now, suffice it to say that many of the actions of the popes, such as the distribution of money and food by Gregory the Great, have almost nothing to do with their role as the head of the Catholic Church, and everything to do with their role as the civic leader of Rome. 
And by contrast, the fact that the German emperors kept showing up, fighting their way into the city, and performing arcane religious ceremonies was not really caused by the ongoing struggle for patronage and offices by the city elites, and was very much caused by the fact that the city had a major ideological significance for one of the great world religions. So the second broad narrative of the popes, which I'm going to call the modernist version, is a narrative that examines the interplay between these roles. Popes were men who had to function as the leaders of a real city and a place, and also had to serve as the spiritual head of an abstract organization called the Catholic Church. Depending on your particular outlook on the world, one of the more popular extrapolations of this narrative is that the more shameful periods of papal history came when they were too focused or too beholden to the vicissitudes of local politics in Rome, which was clearly the source of all corruption and depravity. According to not a small number of Protestant German historians in the 19th century, it was only when the noble and courageous German kings came down out of the Alps that the papacy was properly refocused on its divine mission. And when this was no longer possible, the papacy began a slide into depravity that was only corrected by the sundering of the church by Martin Luther. As you might imagine, this narrative has some problems. Contemporary historians have, of course, attempted to throw out all the embarrassing German nationalism and Protestant moralizing. Depending on how you label it, there was plenty of corruption in the church north of the Alps, and as we mentioned a few times in the last few episodes, the German penchant for slaughtering crowds in Rome in order to install a puppet with total ignorance of local conditions didn't exactly stabilize the situation in Italy. These are themes I will be examining in more detail as we go on. More fundamentally, can we ever fully disentangle the role of the head of the Catholic Church from their position as the Bishop of Rome? I mean, yes, that's basically what has happened subsequently, like in the 20th century, that's what happened. But that was never obviously a desirable outcome for any of the people involved. It's very likely that if the papacy hadn't been invested with the physical lands and local positions, it would almost certainly not have survived the fall of the empire. Part of why the church survived when basically every other late antique imperial institution faded away was specifically because the church hierarchy happened to be based in a hierarchy of localities, and the papacy was locked to the physical city of Rome. So whatever happened later, the papacy needed a Rome during that period, and everything that passed after had to be an evolution from that reality. On the flip side, we will see that Rome was a city that, to greater and lesser extents depending on the time period, owed its economic and political status quo to the fact that it happened to be the city that contained one metric pope. If any geopolitical church business had to be done, even in the darkest of the Dark Ages, you had to interact with Rome, the city, for reasons simultaneously political, economic, and ideological. At the very least, this gave city leaders influence greater than their city's physical size during a crisis. And even in the darkest periods of the city's history, this really ensured that there was a constant stream of visitors bringing economic activity to the city. As we will see, there were political ramifications of this as well, but I think I have made the point for now. Rome's local politics were a part of the ideological and geopolitical happenings of the time, and the Pope's international status impacted local politics. If you need any evidence of this, look at all the German chronicles of the time. Modernist Protestant historians noted how they were constantly complaining about how corrupt Roman politics were, but contemporary postmodernist historians point at something more fundamental. How many chroniclers of this period, living on the other side of a massive mountain range in an entirely different culture and country, talked about the internal politics of Paris or Frankfurt in this era? The fact that even in the early Middle Ages, German chroniclers were complaining about the corruption of the Roman political system means that, complained as they might, and alien as it was, the local political system in Rome pushed its way into geopolitical notice. 
It mattered. It was something that they had to deal with. It was so important that stodgy old hermits living across the continent of muddy and passable roads had opinions on its goings-on. The implications of this post-modernist approach to medieval Rome are still being hashed out. No one is arguing that the role of pope as bishop or church leader were unimportant. Rather, it's argued that these factors and more besides interacted with each other constantly to explain the behavior of the popes at whatever level of analysis you wish to embark upon. Local papal decisions were influenced by the German Roman emperors. Theological church decisions were influenced by the potential angry mobs outside the Lateran Palace. Rather than viewing this as entirely unique, however, we should probably acknowledge that all capitals of complex political organizations have a similar character. Think, for example, about the role of Paris during the French Revolution, or the role of the Divine Port in Ottoman history. Complex political entities seem to need fixed capitals to survive, but any capital is going to exert some kind of influence on decision-making, because that is the place where everyone is. Just like modern politicians in the U.S. are influenced by who they share coffee breaks with in Georgetown, popes were influenced by the people who might alternatively support them or beat them to death in Rome. This isn't necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, it just is, in the same way that the album Stunt by Bare Naked Ladies was a successful album. It may or may not have been good. It may or may not make any sense as a pop record. But there it is, at number three on the Billboard charts in 1997, just sitting there, staring at you. A thing to be explained or not, but a thing nonetheless. So as we embark on a series of episodes seeking to understand the papal perspective on the events leading up to the investiture controversy, we are going to need to at least be familiar with the character of these factors before we move forward. As such, today we will begin by examining the nature of the office of the papacy, and then next time we will locate that office into the realities of medieval Rome. Then in two episodes' time, we will begin looking at the popes of the period. One last note before we begin. As always, I must note and thank my principal sources. Beyond the sources I have mentioned in the past, notably Medieval Christianity by Kevin Madigan, I also need to note two new and invaluable sources. Medieval Rome, Stability and Crisis of a City by the inestimable Chris Wickham, and Republic of St. Peter by Thomas Noble. They've both been extremely important in helping me to understand the medieval city of Rome as a fleshed-out society. As usual, any mistakes are undoubtedly my own, and anything I get right is probably due to their influence. I should also just like to take a moment to thank Bree of the Pontifax podcast. Not only was she extremely helpful in getting me copies of these books, for which I am ever grateful, but beyond being generous with her materials, Bree has been an invaluable friend and collaborator in the development of the Intelligent Speech Conference, an enthusiastic member of the Agora Podcast Network, which I have found myself somehow in charge of during a personal crisis, and she's been our glorious leader over at the History Podcasters Discord page. She's also been a good friend at a time when I needed one. I am deeply in her debt for all her help in the past year. Also, her show is, you know, all about the popes. So if you want to learn about everything I am covering in the next few episodes in much more detail and in a much more amusing fashion, please go check out Pontifax. The show is hilarious and informative. Okay, historiography done. Sources are cited. Thank yous are made. It is time to talk about the papacy. I have talked before in this show about the development of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, but a refresher is needed. The initial organization of the Christian communities in the earliest days of the sect was, as best we can tell from the documentary evidence that we have, essentially a collection of clubs focused on their friend Jesus. 
the evidence we'd be talking about here is, yes, some of the books of the New Testament are our earliest documentary sources. A lot of other stuff then was written, and some of it has passed in and out of the Christian canon. And then real sort of solid documentary sources, as we would consider it, like chroniclers and things that are well-preserved, they kind of don't kick in for another hundred years. So there's kind of an interesting gap here where a couple decades pass, then the apostles, theoretically, I guess, start writing some stuff down. Certainly some of those books have been dated very early. Then there's quite a few decades gap, and then you start getting into the church fathers. And then in the middle there, there's some apocrypha and things like that. If you want to learn more about that stuff, check out Gary Stevens' History in the Bible podcast. Suffice it to say, for our purposes, individual congregations were sort of structured like Greek symposium, but with religious metaphysical overtones. People would sort of gather at a house, share a meal, and discuss things. As happens in any club, but especially one with educational discussion as its focus, disagreements arose that became disputes. The way this was resolved was via asking for help from respected outside figures who could comment on the dispute and maybe moderate. Who was considered to be respected in this loose international community is not directly clear from our evidence, but while one might think the people who knew Jesus would be at the head of the line, this guy Paul, who had never met Jesus, seems to have been very popular as well. So it seems like there wasn't like a firm set of rules at this point. There was no strict hierarchy yet. It was just respect. Fast forward a few centuries. Like I said, we don't really have great evidence for what happened in this period, but at the end of it, we see a Christian community emerging that had needed to develop some kind of organizational structure. We really don't know why, or more importantly, how, but a system of territories evolved where one local leader headed the community chosen by popular consent, and then that man led until he died. Within their territories, these bishops were top dog, though they delegated authority out to priests and deacons and other clerics. A big suggestive piece of evidence is the naming of these places as dioceses or vicarages or things like that. These are all names that were taken from Roman administrative territories. So, in any case, there's some concept that Probably what was going on is that they just said, this diocese is the administrative district that we live in, and so there's just going to be one guy who runs this administrative district. And the district wasn't created by the Christians, it was created by the empire, but they just used it because it was convenient. Or potentially, depending on which version of a debate that I really don't have time to get into you want to take, arguably, all this actually happened really, really late when Christianity was already becoming the official religion of the empire. This isn't an ancient history podcast, so I'm just way down a rabbit hole at this point. In any case, within these territories, these bishops were top dog, though they delegated authority out to priests, deacons, and other clerics. I just said that. This cellular structure of the church is thus not as old as Christianity itself, but it is, no matter which version of the debate you take, very ancient and fairly fundamental to what became the church and Christianity as we understand it. What wasn't so structured at this point was what governed relations between the bishops. That is to say, what happened if there was a dispute between two bishops? Or what happened if there was a dispute within a territory that a bishop couldn't resolve on his own? The evidence here is strong, and it goes back to the earliest days of Christianity. The bishop would write letters. Again, they would seek the advice or moderation from another respected person, be it a theologian or a well-respected bishop or a political figure. Over time, this created patterns, because not every bishop is made equal. Let's say you're a bishop in a dispute, 
Are you going to write a letter to some guy, technically a bishop, living with a bunch of barbarians and some sheep? Or are you going to write a letter to a bishop who was well-educated at a major educational institution? Obviously the latter, assuming you genuinely want good advice, and the sheep bishop isn't some kind of theological prodigy or hermit or something. So over time, the Christian community in times of uncertainty would turn for advice to the bishops of places that had educational institutions, or political influence, or where people were just already used to looking for advice due to their secular experiences. And so over time, this was systematized into a situation where bishops of regionally important centers were seen to be the first point of contact for disputes, and they were given some extra honor as archbishops. Bishops of internationally recognized importance were named patriarchs, and there were five. In Jerusalem, for obvious reasons, in Alexandria, which was kind of the New York of the Roman Empire, in Antioch, which was the nearest major city to Jerusalem and an international trade hub, in Constantinople, the new capital of the empire, and in Rome, the original capital of the empire. Now, it's important to recognize that this version of the story I have presented is the version accepted for the most part by contemporary historians based on critical analysis of documentary evidence. This is not really the story told by the Catholic or Orthodox churches today, and it is not the story told by Christians at the time, though it's not necessarily mutually exclusive. No serious person will argue that Jesus and the apostles ever sat down with a map and said, okay, right, we're going to have things called bishops, and these will be their territories. And okay, Mark, I want you to head to Alexandria and James. James, you stay here in Jerusalem with mom and Peter. Peter, where's Peter? Peter, stop wandering off. Okay, I need you to go to Antioch and then to Rome. Paul, where's, oh, right, Paul doesn't come till later. Never mind, you guys will find out. It's clear that that didn't happen. The bishop system came later, and so the church needed a story to explain it. Their version is that Jesus was able to convey miraculous blessings via laying on of the hands, and that he passed some portion of this power over to the apostles. The apostles then went around preaching, and as they moved on from a community, they would deputize a local leader to receive this power as well, and this deputy was able to also pass on this power. These local deputies were the first bishops, and the ability to trace this mystical link back to the apostles is called apostolic succession. The apostles then settled down in some specific major centers, and those became the main homes of their special powers after they were martyred. Being an apostle was a fairly dangerous job, after all. Rome was supposedly the home base of St. Peter, and because the New Testament makes numerous statements about Peter being the leader of the apostles, this forms the ideological basis for the idea that Rome should be the leader of the church. Now, the evidence for this story is a tad slim. I again refer you to Gary Stevens for the details, and I'm not saying that it didn't happen, I'm just saying that we don't have much evidence. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that this is the story that was theologically and ideologically convincing to people in antiquity and in the Middle Ages, as indeed it is for Catholics and the Orthodox today, and nothing wrong with that. That doesn't mean, however, that everyone who heard and accepted this story thought that the Bishop of Rome should be the unquestioned dictator of truth from the moment they heard it, then or now. The idea of papal supremacy as we understand it is, as we shall see, an idea from the Renaissance, with roots in the High Middle Ages was not basic to the church, and it didn't start with this idea of apostolic succession. Hi, Andrew the Editor here. We should just note that even though Ben is talking about papal supremacy in the church organization, the doctrine of papal infallibility, which some of you are probably thinking of, 
in doctrinal matters is a 19th century invention specifically promulgated by reactionary elements in the Catholic Church to stop the spread of liberalism, republicanism, and socialism. That last one is the reason that the Catholic dogma specifically demands faith in the divine conception, because what could get women to reject socialism more forcefully than repeatedly telling them that Mary was without sin? This is all important if you happen to be writing an MA thesis about culture wars in the French Third Republic. DM me. End podcast editor's footnote. An ongoing question is what level of leadership and command Rome had in late antiquity? Some see the papacy of the early Middle Ages as struggling to maintain its power, and then the Renaissance is when it regains what it had once had. I think there is room for debate, but ultimately that's not how I see it. From the research I have done and the historians I have read, the phrase I have repeatedly heard is that Rome was first among equals in terms of the five patriarchs. Partly, this was because of the story about St. Peter. Partly, it was because of the increasingly entrenched conservatism of Christianity, and since Rome had been important during the rising days of Christianity, that shouldn't change just because circumstances had changed. Rome also had the unique status as the only patriarch of the Latin half of the empire, a situation that probably emerged due to the relative poverty and lack of formal educational institutions in the western half of the empire, particularly in late antiquity. That said, the initial trajectory of Rome was decidedly to lose influence. As the empire waned, the western capital moved to Milan and then Ravenna, increasingly small cities. And within that generation, the Archbishop of Milan, one St. Ambrose, became the leading Christian theologian of his time. His student, St. Augustine, was the Bishop of Carthage, and so for a time Carthage became a major center of respect and thought in the Latin-speaking West. As the empire fell, however, these other cities faded. Milan and Carthage were sacked, and North Africa was dominated by non-Catholic Christians who ran some form of persecution campaign. Milan, or its neighbor Pavia, became the heart of the Lombard kingdom, and while they never ran a full-on persecution of Catholicism, they were Arian Christians, which is to say non-Nicene Christians. And if you care what that means, go listen to another show. Rome too suffered in this period. It was sacked, several times in fact, but ultimately it remained in imperial hands once the Goths were driven out by Justinian. Rome became a major focus of the Eastern Roman administration, but ultimately the plagues and wars unleashed by Justinian's ambition and the rise of Islam meant that the Eastern Romans were on the defensive in Italy and had little direct administrative control outside of their stronghold of Ravenna. Rome, like many other cities, was left under the administration of its bishop. We have touched on this in earlier episodes, but bishops as civil leaders made sense in the context of the times. The political administration had become more and more militarized as the empire fell. Meanwhile, as the church gained in popularity, faithful citizens gave it rich endowments in money and land. With the imperial authorities unable to pay civil officials, and with wealthy citizens fleeing to their rural villas or else simply losing their wealth as barbarian armies ravaged their lands, the church was often the last wealthy institution remaining. Furthermore, once Christianity was made the official religion of the empire by Theodosius, the church was sort of an extension of the state anyway. So it is that we repeatedly read in the chronicles of bishops taking on civic roles, negotiating with passing armies, and using their wealth to help the city survive emergencies. The popes in Rome followed this pattern, but on something of a larger scale. During the initial Lombard invasions, their endowment of lands donated by the faithful included huge swaths of the island of Sicily. Much of the fame and reputation of Gregory the Great is down to him using these resources and his powers as de facto ruler of the city to arrange to have deliveries of grain and money to a city that was effectively under siege. 
While the papacy would eventually lose access to its lands in Sicily, it would retain lands in the Lazio region around Rome. And as a result of further donations and its assumption of civil authority, the papacy came to literally hold the title for almost every piece of land in the city of Rome and its hinterlands. We'll talk about this more next time, but essentially anyone who worked land or owned land or whatever was actually leasing it from the papacy or a church. Once the popes had this power, they were loath to give it up. Even when Eastern Roman power showed some signs of reviving, the popes pushed to retain their status as autonomous administrators within the empire. This had definite theological aspects to it, as the Eastern Roman Empire was repeatedly convulsed by theological controversies, and the pope became a symbol of conservatism, standing against every new theological fad to come down the line. At the same time, the ability of the Pope to command the loyalty of the troops and people of Italy, even the ones not in Rome, made it difficult for the emperors of the East to impose their will in theological disputes, a fact that had direct implications for their secular control of Italy. When you bring the Lombards into the picture, you end up with a Rome that is, in some sense, a besieged outpost of the Eastern Roman Empire, struggling to fend off the barbarians. But basically at the same time, the Pope had influence with the barbarians and commanded a not insignificant military force. As an outpost of the Eastern Roman Empire, Rome had strong trade connections with the East, but was also able to act as an autonomous local force, able to strongly influence local Italian politics and trade with local Italian cities. The fact that the Pope was in some ways independent of the emperors in theological disputes often made them the deciding independent patriarchal vote in disputes something which often led to them being excluded from church councils by the emperors, but then often these councils were seen as less legitimate without the inclusion of the whole of Orthodox Christianity. We will get into this more next time, but the end result of this process was that Rome came out of the early Middle Ages better off than any other city in Latin Christian Europe. This may surprise some of you. The portrayal of Rome in this era by many popular historians is generally something like Detroit is now a city of fallen glory, a fraction of the size it once was. Agriculture had taken hold inside the old Aurelian walls, due to the shrinking population. People lived in and around old monuments, scraping a living in the shadow of former glories that they no longer had the capacity to match. It all comes off as very post-apocalyptic. And to a certain extent, this portrayal is absolutely true, but these kinds of things are all relative. Compared to the Rome of Marcus Aurelius, the city of the 800s and 900s was indeed a shell of itself, its inhabitants the shattered survivors of a once great civilization. But in comparison to basically everywhere else in Latin Europe, Rome was a bustling, economically and politically vital metropolis. Podcast footnote. I should probably define my terms somewhat closely here, because I used Europe. Rome was nothing compared to Constantinople, which is technically on the European side of the water. And Rome was pretty far back from Cordoba, and there were several other Spanish cities in Muslim-controlled Spain that were pretty big. That said, in terms of Christian Europe, Rome was by far the biggest city. And so, from the point of view of that civilizational sphere, Rome was in the lead. End podcast footnote. I'll get into the whys and wherefores next time of this success of post-apocalyptic Rome. But for now, I want to focus on the impact this had on the papacy. Essentially, Rome came out of the early Middle Ages significantly more important relative to its competitors than it had been in late antiquity. The theological disputes with the East had built up Rome's theological reputation, at least in the eyes of the Romans, and many in Latin Christianity and even in Eastern Orthodoxy, or what would become Eastern Orthodoxy. 
It had a powerful economy that hosted merchants from around the Mediterranean and across Europe. It had educational institutions, including a dense network of monasteries that were fed by its contacts with the East, and which nowhere else outside of Ireland could match in Christian Europe, or Latin Christian Europe. So Rome was, for the time, the hub of a dense network of political and economic and cultural contacts. Add that to the fact that Christianity was deeply identified with Romanness, as opposed to Germans or Franks or what have you, and the fact that Roman was synonymous with a great empire and was also considered the ethnic culture of the peasantry in many places, and the city of Rome makes sense as a location of prestige and importance, even for places like the British Isles that were separated from it by oceans and huge mountain ranges and vast tracts of muddy roads. So on the one hand, no one owed the papacy anything at this point. Europe was ruled by a series of uneducated warlords whose main qualification was providing loot to the psychopathic peacocks that made up their army, and who lorded it over Christian communities more concerned with survival than any kind of directive from the old capital. The bishops, leaders of these communities, were the primary masters of their territories, and didn't need to go to Rome for permission to do anything. On the other hand, working with Rome had certain advantages, advantages which were certainly explained to the new bosses of Europe by the Christians in their territories and agents coming from Rome itself. Converting to Catholicism would make the church more friendly to those leaders, and the church had the loyalty of the people, since the church was the only institution that had stuck by them during the bad times. Once local loyalty was secured, working with Rome itself opened up a ton of possibilities. As a hub of trade and politics, working with Rome could help plug a petty kingdom into a trade network that could provide resources to keep the army happy, and to political connections that would provide prestige that was recognized by their internal nobility and their external peers amongst the ruling classes. Certainly, this was an easier case to make if you were close enough to Rome to trade with them easily, but the prestige and political connections had pull even at the furthest edges of the former empire and beyond. And what did you lose by engaging with Rome? Ultimately, the Pope was far away and couldn't force you to do anything. Many, if not most, of these warlords were happy to engage the Pope, take the trade and prestige benefits, and then ignore letters from Rome that they didn't like. I should say that the ideological and theological elements of this can't be discounted. Some actions taken by some kings in the early Middle Ages really make no sense unless they genuinely believe in Christianity. For example, several Anglo-Saxon kings who retired at the height of their power to undertake a pilgrimage to Rome to live out their days as monks. This lost them all the power they'd been working to build, and often they left their kingdom in chaos. So it's hard to think of a rationale other than deep commitment to Christianity as they understood it. In any case, this process only reinforced and grew the prestige and wealth of the papacy. After all, as more and more kings worked with Rome, the pressure on the rest grew to be part of the club, as it were. And the more people worked with Rome, the more messengers and pilgrims and merchants took the dangerous journey across the Alps and down into the city, where they proceeded to rent accommodations, spend money on food and souvenirs and trade goods, and of course make donations to the church. All this meant that, unlike the rest of the continent, whose wealth was strictly limited to what could be skimmed off the peasantry, Rome also had a major source of actual coinage flowing into the city from outside, something we will discuss more next time, but which had a major role in the internal politics of the city. As this prestige and economic influence grew, the popes were able to assume a more and more prominent role within Christianity, and that came with influence and power. Certainly not the monarchy of the papacy that we will see later in the series, but the theological opinions of the popes were sought with more and more frequency. The popes participated in the various theological controversies of the East, again often as conservative wildcards in church councils. 
their disagreements with the more dynamic and intellectual movements of the East started to create friction that will develop as we go forward. In the West, the writings of some popes became very influential, and the influence of Roman monasteries were extremely important. This ultimately came to have international political importance. That importance started with local concerns. Ever since the invasions of Justinian, the popes had been alternatively fighting against the institutional overreach of the empire, while also attempting to convince the empire to defend its borders against various barbarians, notably the Lombards. After the Lombards converted to Catholicism, there was some attempt to play the two groups off each other, but the increasingly dire situation in the East ultimately made it clear that the Eastern Roman Empire was a fading force in Italian politics. As we've seen in past episodes, this led the papacy to call on the Franks. The Franks were one of the earlier barbarian converts to Catholicism, but their civil wars had wrecked the economy and coherence of what we would now call France and Germany, effectively ripping the heart out of the old Roman economic system. By the 700s, however, the kingdom had been reconsolidated by the Pepinid dynasty of what we might call prime ministers, people who ruled in the name of kings but had taken all the power into their own hands. Under Charles Martel, the popes began an energetic correspondence with the Pepinids and gave approval for their consolidation of power in return for diplomatic and military favors, I mean assistance. Yeah. This led to several key moments in papal and indeed European history. In 751, Pope Stephen actually left Rome and went to Paris to approve the transfer of power, officially from the old kings of the Franks to the new Pepinid dynasty, which were now called the Carolingian dynasty after Charles Martel. In return, the Carolingians repeatedly beat the tar out of the failing Lombard monarchs until the rise of their greatest king, Charlemagne, who went down into Italy, conquered the Lombards once and for all, and then went to Rome, where he talked with the Pope as an equal. The Pope, Leo III, crowned him Emperor of the Romans in 888, setting into motion all the events we covered in Season 2 of this podcast. The Carolingians did more than just get a crown from the Popes, however. As with so many things, much of our understanding of the papal role in history was set on its current course by Charlemagne. Certainly, as we have said, Rome already had prestige and a leadership role in the Christian church before Charlemagne, but Charlemagne saw himself as a Davidic king, devoted to doing good things for society and the church. The Carolingian dynasty owed its legitimacy to the church, after all, and it's worth saying that Charlemagne and Leo really got along very well and seemed to have respected each other. Charlemagne, as the single most powerful person in Europe and commanding armies that he led to war at least once a year, had a lot of power to do nice things for the church. And so he did. He made numerous laws and edicts that brought Christian practices more in line with the ones in Rome, including making the Benedictine Order of Monte Cassino, just south of Rome and well within the Roman sphere of influence, into the basis for all monasticism in Europe. That's just an example. Charlemagne made laws about priestly behavior and gave the church tons of land and wealth and often acknowledged the papacy as the head of the church. For crying out loud, he got into what kind of music people were supposed to be singing, saying that the Roman version was correct. I think it's clear from the records of the time that the papacy viewed this alliance with the Franks as a good thing, capital G, capital T. Previous to this, the papacy was sort of like the Supreme Court. They had their opinions, which they could circulate, but they could really only influence doctrine or events when people came to them and asked them to weigh in. And while the popes had been able to use this mix of persuasion and mediation to sort of get all the Latin Christianities pointing in vaguely the same direction, local variations definitely remained, though they usually got brought back in line eventually. With Charlemagne as Leo's best friend, the papal view of Christian doctrine could be imposed on the entire empire. And once that happened, uh, outlying areas soon fell in line just due to cultural influence. All Leo had to do was persuade one person, 
Charlemagne and all of Christianity, all of Latin Christianity, I guess I should say, would start to trend in the direction that the popes were outlining. But as the empire waned, the problems with this arrangement came into focus. At a basic level, when the grandsons of Charlemagne began fighting each other, it left no one to protect Rome from invasions by Arab pirates or local strongmen. Less immediately, but ultimately more consequential, was the issue of the source of the Pope's secular power. The Popes knew that they had ruled their patch in Lazio and Tuscany since the Eastern Roman Empire started to fade, but they had assumed that power as an ad hoc arrangement. The Eastern Romans never really explicitly gave them Italy, they just gradually stopped sending governors. When the Pepinids and early Carolingians got involved, they made public statements recognizing the Pope's autonomous control over the Roman territories as a way to refute claims by the Lombards and publicly show what good friends they were to the Church. But if you think about it, these donations of land would seem to put the popes in a subordinate relationship to the Frankish emperors, like they were given their land by the Franks, when in reality they'd controlled it for several centuries at this point. Plus, during this period, the emperor who gave them the land could be, you know, whatever random Carolingian cousin happened to get big ideas and rock up into Italy, which isn't a good way to get uh, predictability and stability. On the other hand, the papacy had never had more soft power than during this period. Seen after the reign of Charlemagne as the clear leader of Christianity, with the emperors busy stabbing each other, the collapse of the empire into warring factions meant that there was no figure in Europe with prestige to match the popes, and indeed all the various would-be emperors were competing for church approval. One of the most interesting and famous examples of this came in the reign of Pope Nicholas I, starting in 862. In that year, Lothair II inherited a small patch of Lotharingia. He and his wife, who had been forced on him by his father, did not get along. Lothair attempted to force the local bishops to allow a divorce, which they did, but the bishops in neighboring areas objected. The fact that these bishops in the, those neighboring areas were from areas whose king stood to inherit the lands of Lothair if he died without an heir was surely a coincidence. They, of course, were clearly just worried about the legalities of marriage about which the church had not really taken a strong position yet. In any case, the Pope soon became involved and took a principled stand against divorce, forcing these two people who by now hated each other to cohabitate, and effectively ensuring that Lotharingia would not have a legitimate heir, and thus would become a blood-soaked battleground for the next thousand years. But, you know, the sanctity of marriage, I guess. The key thing for our purpose is that the Pope weighed in on a point of doctrine, and ultimately all the bishops and nobles on the scene felt like they had to listen to his point of view. While the Pope couldn't force Lothair into line directly, his disapproval created enough civil discord to repeatedly force Lothair back to the negotiating table. The Popes now had real power. They were definitely seen as the head of the Western Catholic Church. In that role, they were seen as having an ability to pronounce doctrine and act as a court of final appeal for religious disputes. And in certain situations, this could have political implications. The flip side of this is that within 20 years, the Carolingian world would definitively implode leaving the popes dodging various members of the Gadeshi clan and trying to hold on to their lands. As we reached the end of season two, we saw the popes deeply in the thrall of local strongmen and even strong women, a situation that started to undermine their reputation. However, this was an issue across the former empire, and led to another aspect of papal prestige, the reform movement. I've spoken before about the Peace of God movement. Basically, during the chaos after the fall of the Carolingian Empire, local church leaders gradually found themselves back in the role of local community leaders as secular authority evaporated into a series of feuds between local rich people. 
These religious leaders at first tried to use their influence to stop the fighting, or at least contain it, and this had some success. But there was a wider realization in the educational institutions of the Catholic world, particularly in the Carolingian heartland, that society was not functioning as it should. The church, they said, bore some responsibility, and they advocated for priests and monks to focus on being the best priests and monks they could possibly be. But they also saw repeatedly that the church was being dominated by local strongmen, who often imposed their own relatives as church leaders, something which was felt to cause corruption. These early reformers sought to appeal to any power that could help clean up corruption in the church, be it a lord or king with a religious disposition who could help install more correct church officials, or be it higher religious authorities who could correct abuses. As these were all loyal former Carolingians, the Pope was definitively seen as a figure that could be appealed to to correct abuses in the church hierarchy. And so papal prestige grew, at least among people who weren't close to Rome. And, you know, weren't watching how the sausage was made. Let's bring all this together. What was the status of the Pope vis-a-vis -vis the Catholic Church as we reached the reign of Otto I? The Pope had limited hard power. As we will see next time, the Pope just ruled the area around Rome. That rule allowed the popes to survive the fall of the Roman Empire, but hardly made it the head of the Catholic Church. The power of the papacy ultimately came from persuasion. Over the course of the early Middle Ages, the papacy had been able to convince the Latin world to view Rome as a place to find well-educated answers to disputes, and this had gradually built to the point that the papacy had some level of recognition from the entire Latin Catholic world. This conveyed few real powers, however, and if local strongmen wanted to ignore the Pope, they could and did, and when those local strongmen were next to Rome, that was a problem. Charlemagne changed that, enforcing the idea of papal authority as a path to his own ends, but ultimately leaving the papacy with far more prestige than his own heirs. By 1000 or so, if the Pope issued a doctrinal opinion or weighed in on a dispute, usually people listened. When local leaders didn't, the Pope could condemn them, leading their aristocrats and bishops to potentially abandon them for their enemies, and given the basically ongoing civil war conditions of the time, that could be bad. This meant that the Popes had huge diplomatic influence across Europe, but very little ability to project hard power, even in their own neighborhood. As we will see, if a secular ruler had enough power to march an army into Rome, the soft power of the Popes and the hard power of an emperor could come into conflict. In the background, a grassroots movement was building that sought to correct local corruption problems in the clergy, and many, though not all of these reformers, were looking to Rome as a source of authority to push their agenda. Ultimately, most of these people at this point didn't care who came to their aid to stop corruption, be it a king, be it the pope, whoever, the point was to stop corruption. That would change. Okay, that's a good place to stop for today. Next time out, we will begin to look at Rome as a place. How did the economy run? How is it governed? And what role did the popes and the emperors play in this government? I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. But until then, goodbye, and thank you for listening to Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. Oh, goddammit, cat. Duncan. And cat's crawling into a hole in the ceiling. Alright, I got him out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? 
Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 